This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This month marks a year since families and businesses on the military's water system began complaining about fuel in their drinking water. Since then, the focus has been on ensuring clean and safe drinking water. The unpacking of jet fuel in the pipes began last week, and it's just about complete. Now the Navy says its closure plan recommends keeping those steel line tanks in place rather than removing them. It's the Navy's preferred option, weighing environmental concerns and costs. Regulators still, however, have to concur. Assistant Secretary of the Navy Meredith Berger arrived in Honolulu this week to talk about the details of the plan to close the World War II era facility. We sat down with her yesterday afternoon. I really do appreciate the fact that, you know, you've taken the time to come off base and come to our humble studios uh, to engage with us about this important plan, you know, for the shutdown. So so thank you. You are most welcome. And it's exactly that. It's important. And it's important that people understand what is the information that we conveyed today? What is the way forward? Um, and overall, what does this mean for the community, for the safety of the environment and for making sure that we move forward in an informed way for everybody. And so what can you share with our listeners? Can you give us kind of the big picture of of what this plan details? What the Department of the Navy has delivered is the plan for the closure of Red Hill. This is something that we saw in the superseding emergency order that came out um, just before the summer. Uh, This is something that the Secretary of Defense directed um, in his memo to us, and this is something that we have heard from the community. And so that's the plan that's here. This is something that will take place after defueling. So the Joint Task Force, Admiral Wade, is in charge of the defueling efforts. You may be seeing that unpacking is taking place right now and it's it's going well. So as these processes move forward and that's what the joint task force is in charge of, the Department of Navy is tasked with closure, which is the next step in this big picture process. And Admiral Wade was with us last week and he had talked about, you know, the need to inspect the piping system to make sure it's sound so they can start draining these tanks. So that's going to be a while. A while because it prioritizes safety and it makes sure that we're doing everything carefully so that we can move forward expeditiously as um, all of these safety steps are taken. And so unpacking is that first step there to make sure that we can remove all of the fuel that may be in pipes right now to get that work done, to get towards that big picture step. So he is targeting on his timeline a Uh, June 24 end date for that effort. It is at that point that you will start to see actions um, that come as part of the closure plan. And then um, from there, uh, you'll see that process go forward. Um, I should pause for a second and explain exactly what uh, closure is going to look like. And so what came in the regulatory document that we delivered is a laydown of what the different options are for closure. There is one that we think looks like the best option based on our analysis right now, and it is called closure in place. Um, So this means that the piping and the tanks will stay where they are, but this is the least disruptive for the environment, for the aquifer, uh, for the community. It is the safest way forward, and then it also is the most expeditious. So from the point that defueling will stop and Admiral Wade's work is done, the Navy's work will pick up uh, for closure. And if this is the way that the Department of Health approves, and very importantly, um, this is a process that the Department of Health will approve our way forward on in terms of closure, we think that will take about three years. As far as the actual closure of the tanks, I mean, there is a whole process of dealing with the waste, with the sludge at the bottom of the tanks, washing down the steel line tanks as well. And there's concern about where does that all go? Yes, and that is an important question. So after defueling is done, there still is that residual material as you described. And so in the closure plan, you'll see a whole chapter dedicated to what it means to determine what that material is, how to categorize it, how to package it, um, and how to transport it, all in accordance with federal, state, and local regulatory guidelines. And so this is a place where at every step of the way, we'll be collaborating with our regulatory partners, so the Department of Health, the Environmental Protection Agency, to make sure that we are following the guidance that is there for exactly that purpose, um, to make sure that it's safe, and that is part of the closure plan, no matter which way we go. And then of the 20 tanks, you've got five that are not in use, that have already been pretty much closed down and cleaned. 
So I guess the cleaning and the closure process shouldn't be like we're you know reinventing the wheel because we've already done this. Yes. So there is uh, some practice under our belts in terms of understanding what the steps are, uh, what cleaning looks like. It all goes back to that regulatory guidance. Um, there's a clear cut way to be able to achieve this. But what we know from that experience as well is that this takes time. There are all sorts of steps along the way that we need to make sure that we take for the safety of the people doing the work, for the safety of the environment. There's ventilation considerations making sure that the right number of people are in the space at a certain time. How to get into and out of the tanks um, is another limiting factor, and so that's how we've determined what the time looks like. At every step, we will look for ways to be more expeditious, but not at the cost of safety, um, and that's something that as we find those opportunities, as we get new information, we'll continue to communicate that. You do have a section here where it's dedicated to, you know, vapors and uh, the monitoring of that because you don't want the fumes, you know, to accumulate there. What about the, let's say, the original, like the boring holes that were created when they actually constructed these tanks? I mean, have we taken all of that into account? So the closure plan takes into account closure of the entire facility to include the piping infrastructure that supports it. As we move forward to achieve that closing, we're going to bring in um, engineering expertise from outside that will help us to understand exactly what it will take to achieve that closure. And so this, these are things like engineering estimates, closer assessments of infrastructure and other considerations to make sure that we're looking at it every step of the way. Another piece that's in there are the environmental considerations. And so contemplating what it means to do that environmental assessment and care and, and all of their steps that would be complementary to and in addition to the closure plan. You do have a, a you know a timeline in here which allows for you know any updates right if you get new information. We don't know what would change necessarily, but we do know uh, that we need to make sure that we continue to ask the right questions uh, to have all that information. So I, I mentioned that we have ex internal expertise in the Department of Navy. We have external experts that we are working with as well, and it's that diversity of perspective that will make sure that we are asking the right questions, that we are double-checking everything and really combining all of the benefit of everybody's perspective and talents and experience to make sure that we are doing the right steps to uh, close completely within the regulatory guidance. We are going to take a break from our interview with Meredith Berger, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and the Environment. She's in town to talk with state health officials about the Red Hill Closure Plan, which the Navy submitted yesterday. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. General election ballots are in the mail. Need help studying up on the candidates and issues? HPR is here to help. Check out our free voter guide at hawaiipublicradio.org slash vote. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Leslie Shore, author of Listen to Succeed. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to identify and overcome barriers to effective listening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Le Jardin Academy, a PK-12 school located on a Kailua mountainside, committed to nurturing each student's passions. November 5th open house registration at lejardinacademy.org. If
if you're just joining us, we're hearing from Meredith Berger, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and the Environment. She arrived yesterday from Washington, D.C. to talk to state health officials about the Red Hill Closure Plan, which covers tank cleaning and removal of sludge and waste material. It also indicates that keeping the tanks and repurposing them is the Navy's preferred option. Dismantling would be more expensive and more of a risk to the environment. Let's continue our conversation with Berger. We appreciate that we have Admiral Wade, who's going to be here for that whole defueling process. Will there be a commitment to have someone else then see the facility through completion? So just as defueling has Admiral Wade, um, who's who's in charge of that effort, on island you'll have Admiral Barnett, who is the regional commander for the Navy. He will be seeing um, this process through as as it progresses. It's important to note that the closure actions will not take place until defueling is complete. And so there will be at the June 2024 end date, assuming that defueling does stay on time, at that point that three years will start running. Will Admiral Barnett be there for the, the duration of the closure or do we just wait for the next Admiral to come in? So you will see turnover during this time, but what won't change is the commitment. This is direction that has come from the Secretary of Defense. This is direction that has come from the Department of Health through the emergency order. And so there is an obligation that regardless of who is in the seat, the Navy is going to meet. And then I understand that there has been some information sharing or better information sharing than there was previously. The Board of Water Supply, I think, was asking that there be additional information on previous spills released so they could reevaluate the risk to the aquifer. Is that still going on? You know, and then what are the Navy's obligations? You know, should we find, let's say, the 27,000 gallons that leaked out back in 2015, 2016? I mean, what can you tell us about that? In terms of this in entire effort, there are three steps. Defueling, closure, and then long-term remediation. And so your question gets uh, really across all three, but long-term remediation is the long-term commitment and responsibility that the Department of Navy has. So it is not that the tanks are closed and we all are never to be seen again. This is an enduring commitment that uh, we have an enduring responsibility for long-term remediation of the environment. You brought up the point of uh, collaboration with the regulators. And this is a really important thing and something that has been working so well. So the Department of Health, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, two regulatory entities have been wonderful in collaborating with us. And so as we think about the responsibility of the regulators, they are the ones that are rightfully asking us the tough questions, enforcing it every step of the way. And we are counting on them to do that so that we are doing the best for the community and for our obligations. Regulation is also a partnership. We need to know what their expectations are, make sure that we are answering their questions and that we're getting good information from them to be able to achieve those ends. And so we've really been able to work with them in both of these ways, so collaboratively to make sure that we're moving forward with good information and clear information for the community, which is incredibly important as we move forward on this. And also, um, as regulators, they are the ones that are asking us the tough questions, making sure that we're following all the rules for that very same end to make sure that we're doing right for the community. And just wanted to say how, how important that is and how grateful we've been for that. And then as far as community input, I mean, you do have points you know, in this timeline to be able to get feedback from the community. Yes. And so I mentioned the December 2022 will provide that full analysis, um, along with a recommendation that closure in place uh, looks like it is the best option for us to pursue. We will wait for the Department of Health to let us know um, if they agree with that, if, if that is the decided way forward. What's great about this option is it also preserves beneficial reuse of the facility. Um, I want to note very importantly that this is a non-fuel reuse. So none of the closure alternatives contemplate reusing it for fuel. Uh, 
But if we're going to do beneficial reuse, then um, this is this is something that has been part of the community, and so we want to work with the community to get their inputs. And so, if that is something that the Department of Health wants to pursue as well, then we'll set out a rigorous process to collect that input, um, to evaluate it, and see what some of the great ideas are that we may be able to move forward with. Well, some of our listeners have already chimed in. I mean, we did a whole history on the construction of Red Hill, and the ideas ranged from, you know, opening up one of the tanks as a visitor center to be able to appreciate the history because it is an engineering uh, marvel. Mm-hmm. You know, someone else suggested holding tanks for water or dry goods, you know, in the case of uh, emergency. Uh, so I don't know, you know, what the military has come up with as, as possible uses. We're focused right now on making sure that we understand the way forward for closure. We recommend closure in place, um, and if so, we're really excited to work with the community to get those ideas. I know um, I just got to spend some time with Admiral Barnett, and he was saying that people are approaching him uh, with all sorts of different ideas, and importantly, we'll need to make sure that we evaluate the ideas um, and that it is a beneficial reuse for the community, um, and it is that best application. And we will do that in collaboration with the Department of Health, with the Environmental Protection Agency, making sure that we prioritize the things that we always do, safety, protecting the environment, and taking care of the people and the community um, here that we are a part of. So we'll have a lot to look forward to if that is the decided way forward, and um, it'll be a really great way to collaborate with the community that we're a part of. Just going back uh, on the closure plan, you know, you've got the 20 tanks there. Is there any part of that facility that's more prob- problematic, you know, than another of, as far as the the defueling of those tanks? This is not something that I have a immediate visibility on in, in terms of, but that is um, one of the questions that we'll be asking as we move forward on closure. Uh, it's the same thing that we're looking at as we work through defueling some of the infrastructure um, repairs that need to happen to make sure that we're able to follow that critical pathway to getting to the end of defueling. Uh, we're asking those same questions at every step of the way so that if we see any challenges that we are contemplating what that means in terms of our process and our steps forward, uh, prioritizing safety, uh, making sure that we are not putting um, any of the people, the community, or the environment in any sort of jeopardy as we move forward on uh, the commitments that we've made. That was Meredith Berger, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and the Environment. She's in town to talk with local and federal officials as the defueling of Red Hill continues. Rail station cracks and who's responsible? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you know we have been seeing the train on the on the guideways, uh, you know, as they move into this testing period. Um, but your story today is about the cracks at the station. That's right. These are cracks uh, that involve. Um, it's a specific type of crack that uh, inspectors were finding on these large station supports. So they're specific to the stations uh, on the west side, actually a handful of stations. Uh, I want to say about five of the stations. And it's a, it's a type of cracking called shear cracking, where the concern is that this might have to do with uh, some, some structural problems as opposed to some of the standard weathering that you'll see in, in your run-of-the-mill concrete cracking. So. Hart and the city have been taking a very close look at this through their consultants over the last several months, as well as the engineer of record who was responsible for helping to build and and design those hammerhead piers, those station supports where the cracks are forming. So today's story basically looks at where they're at on this investigation, as best as we know, as best as we can find. And there were some newly released uh, documents that came out ahead of the the Hart board meeting that's coming up on Friday, and what these documents basically give us a, a glimpse into what the different consultants and the engineers' record are are 
finding in their initial conclusions as, as part of their investigation. And it's kind of interesting because there is some deviation. So, so Hart's consultant uh, feels that the, the cracking is not a major problem and that it can be solved with some pretty basic uh, sealing, right? Uh, however, the actual engineer record on the station supports uh, a company called HNTB is is they're they're more concerned and they're actually saying things like we should have used more rebar in these station supports. Now, I want to caution and this is this is these initial findings and initial conclusions. We're still waiting for the final report, but it's still interesting to look at at what they're finding kind of before. The, you know, the, the final official polished report comes out, what these, these companies were, were saying and what they were kind of throwing back and forth before we, we see kind of that final presentation. Right. I mean, best case scenario, it's just cosmetic and they can patch it up. Uh, worst case is it's going to mean, I guess, additional delays before uh, Hart can turn this over to the city and before we get a system up and operating. That's right. And what Hart CEO Lori Kahikina has said so far is that they are certainly going to have to put an epoxy seal over all of these cracks. But what we're waiting to find out is, is they're, they're also hinting that there is going to be additional work on at least some of these cracks. And we're not sure what that entails. They're looking at different methodologies. We should get a clear idea, I hope, on Friday. And the other bigger uh, question behind all of this is how that might affect the, uh, the latest opening date for the partial system from uh, just east of Kapolei to Aloha Stadium. Right now, the city is, is at the latest juncture. They want to open early next year. Well, the question is, if this is a big enough of a problem uh, and, the, you know, the, the repairs are going to take enough time, is that going to push that back even further? Right. And for the people that live out there and have been watching this system take place, I mean, we're talking about the stations at uh, UH West Oahu, Ho'opili, Waipahu, Westlock, and Pearl Ridge, right? Right, right. Uh, I, there were five of them. I'm not sure if there were four or five in that, but yeah, those mm-hmm. are those are among, if not all of them, the five. Yeah. yeah so all right. So so well, uh, I guess we'll just have to wait to see what happens on Friday. Um, you know, but I mean, the report. I mean, any definitive times as to you know when that's supposed to come out for sure? No, we we don't know. Um, when I've asked Lori about this basically just stress that she does not want to rush this. She doesn't, you know, want, want any of this work to be to, to be in any sort of haste. Uh, but at the same time, we're not totally clear on the status or when that final report might actually drop. Right, because a, a lot's riding on this. Uh, there's so much, so many moving parts at this point, right? They're trying to launch the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the final uh, leg uh, into town, into the urban core, you know, with the complicated um, utility <laughs> move. Uh, they've got the testing of the trains, and and then now this on the um, on those uh, on those piers. That's right. It's definitely keeping me busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, eat your Wheaties. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. Aloha. That was reporter Marcel Onre with today's reality check. To read his stories on rail and heart, visit org. <laughs> State Representative Sylvia Luke made the decision to step away from the powerful House Finance Committee to make a run for lieutenant governor. Getting through the primary was tough as she was targeted by political action committees and negative campaign ads, which ended up backfiring for the super PAC. Luke says that experience has strengthened her bond with her Democratic running mate, Josh Green, who she says she is in daily contact with. Since then, Josh and I have been coordinating a lot. We talk almost on a daily basis, and we talk policies, and we talk campaign. But, uh, you know, that's the number one thing that people ask me. How are you folks getting along? And we're getting along really great, I think. We have really common um, vision, common interests, and things that we are very eager to get done. 
Well, you know, two things that have developed uh, with uh, the EGA administration you know, late in his uh, term here, uh, you know, have to do with uh, the Aloha Stadium and mm-hmm. uh, the HTA contracts, you know, for marketing right. and uh, managing tourism. And, you know, big wild card as to whether that's going to get really resolved before the governor leaves or if they'll just let the time clock run out on the Aloha Stadium and then, you know, the new administration uh, deals with it. But, you know, let's start with that. What are your thoughts on uh, what's going on with the Aloha Stadium? Yeah, you you know, it is unfortunate that the current administration made a decision so late. I think um, some of the reasons that the governor gave, Governor Ige gave, uh, are reasonable and they're sound. The unfortunate part were that the decision came really late and then it was again he it didn't seem as though he communicated with his department and the stadium authority and that's why i think you know they were on tv saying okay you know they had no idea they were blindsided so you know it it was somewhat of the administration's inability to communicate to even his line staff and then also, you know, to explain his decision. I think um, for anything to happen substantively between now and when the, um, the, the change of administration occurs, I don't think it gives um, Governor Ige enough time to make um, changes that will impact you know, um, even add to additional delays or whatnot. But I do think that there has to be a conversation and we have to incorporate some of the concerns that the governor raised. And, you know, we, as um, the new administration comes in, you know, there has to be a conversation that includes the University of Hawaii, that includes the legislature, the community folks, and um, get this going. I um, completely support the uh, build-out of the stadium, but I think there is a pathway for us to move forward, and we're very anxious to get started on that project as well. When you heard about this, I mean, were you under the impression that there was buy-in from the University of Hawaii? I did. President Lasner was in the room when Governor Ige made the decision to pull back on the RFP, and I think the at least the the university leadership agreed with that approach only because I think there was very little input given to the University of Hawaii as the stadium build-out was being planned. We need to include some of the clientele that, that we're planning to serve, and that, that includes the University of Hawaii. So, you know, I think that, that will change some course as well. And then on the HTA contract, you know, in that whole hullabaloo, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know, are you and Josh on the same page as to oh, what needs to happen, you know, with dealing with overtourism? We had conversation, and I think he and I both agree that going back to 10 million tourists a day without any kind of limitation or restrictions cannot continue. And I know he has advocated for a $50 green fee, uh, and it's something that the legislature has taken up in the past and discussed in the past as well. Uh, There has to be some type of management tourism strategy. Um, Until now, HTA has focused on much more so on marketing. But HTA is attached to a state department, and it is a state department agency that needs to set the stage and vision for what Hawaii tourism industry will look like and what is a tourism market will look like. And now, more so, you know, the the people are calling for managed tourism, you know, calling for um, tourists who will be respectful to the aina, you know, understand their kuleana, and be cognizant about, you know, places that they shouldn't go, you know, places that they can go. And I think Hawaii tourism should lead this effort in this pathway. I do completely support involving Native voices, and I'm glad that CNHA was awarded, and they will be working in conjunction, actually, with HCCB in the meantime to look at how we can transition from simply just marketing to a managed tourism. And is it your understanding that that's all, you know, on the up and up, you know, I mean, I don't know, are there 
waivers that need to be in place in order for that contract to go forward? So from my, my understanding, because there was a dispute, so initially CNHA challenge and then afterwards um, HVCV challenge. So I think that the new agreement is that they work together to figure it out, right? So, you know, that was part of, I guess, kind of a um, resolution. So HVCV will do some of the marketing, whereas CNHA will help guide the discussion about managed tourism. But what we're hoping is that CNHA will use some of the historical perspective and the expertise provided by HVCV, and then, and then you know, in the future, CNHA can take over the entire portion, you know, and the bidding and winning the contract again. But it seems like that is likely going to fall into the lap of the next administration. Yes and no, only because that effort has already started. So you know, at least for I think it's about a year. They have kind of a joint agreement for a year. So at least for the next year, regardless of whether there's a new administration or not, you know, the HTA will start in its work to merge cultural sensitivity brought by CNHA and then the marketing portion brought by HPCV. And in your conversations with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, Mm -hmm. have there been any discussions about how the Lieutenant Governor's role, you know, might be expanded? Um, that's a really good question, Catherine, and I think that's what a lot of people are wondering as well. You, you know, as um, people know, I bring a lot of expertise and relationship that I've gained, not just with legislators, but community members and department agency heads within the department into this role. And and I think Josh recognizes that, so automatically he said, hey, you know, because early and expanding pre-K is uh, an important thing that I want to work on, important initiative. He said, okay, you can basically run with that program. In addition to that, he has also indicated that I would be able to lead the efforts for the broadband expansion as well. And those two things uh, were something that, you know, I discussed during the campaign. And, you know, I believe those things are possible in the next several years. So I'm just very thankful that the lieutenant governor is willing to allow me to head some of those large initiatives. Well, I just have been to view down there at the convention center, you know, during the pandemic, uh, when we mm-hmm. had the issues of the Labor Department woes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Know, just the need to modernize our infrastructure when it comes to, you know, capacity building, you know, and, and, and the broadband, you know, initiative. It's just, it's screaming for help. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, broadband and IT uh, infrastructure was something that was kind of in the back burner and not really centerpiece. But, you know, the last two years, people realize even more that it becomes a necessity and it's almost a utility because if we're talking about not just in the healthcare industry where we're dealing with telehealth, a lot of the outdated IT systems, you mentioned the UI system, even for, you know, working at home, the ability to work from home and uh, for educational equity, broadband and reliable broadband is really important for many people in our state. We know that the two of you are aligned on, you know, many issues on uh, dealing, you know, with our homelessness. Correct. And women's rights, you know, civil rights, housing issues, cost of living. And that's why I think we're getting along so well. You know, a lot of our interests are aligned. A lot of our priorities are aligned. And because we work together in the legislature, we know where our each other's strengths are and we're willing to help each other um, succeed and help the state. So we're not taking anything for uh, granted. You know, we're, we have a week to go and we're working really hard and we would be honored to be in this position to help the state. Anything you want to say just about the closure of Red Hill? Because that report has just come out, you know, with more of a timeline uh, of, you know, not just specifics on how to do it, but how to deal with the waste that's going to be generated as they prepare to shut those things down. And then what do you use the tanks for afterwards? You know, this is going to be a long process and we need to do it right. You know, we need to move the fuel out in a way that it doesn't cause more environmental hazard and more uh, waste. It's really paramount and it's really important for us to have the Department of Health folks and, you know, working with Board of Water Supply to keep the Navy accountable and the federal government accountable to make sure that they 
come through on this promise. I think people have heard these kind of promises before, and one of the uh, disappointing thing is the Navy keeps changing the point of contact or people in charge, and the new person comes in every every so often and say the same thing. And, you know, I think people are tired of hearing the same old thing. You know, they want action and uh, looking forward to working with our department and the federal delegation to keep this moving. We have to shut it down. We have to shut down Red Hill fuel tank and we got to ensure that our aquifer and our water systems are safe. Um, anything else that you want to add? This election is really important in light of what's going on in the federal government and the implications of things of people's rights and some of the things that's happening that impact um, health and safety of individuals. So I think it's really important to elect a team that's ready to go, ready to handle whatever is coming down. And that was Sylvia Luke, veteran state lawmaker and Democratic candidate in the lieutenant governor's race. We were hoping to bring you an interview with Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, Seoula Tupai Jr. tomorrow, but he's declined several requests for an interview, citing a busy schedule. For more coverage on the upcoming general election, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. The upcoming midterm elections could prove to be troubled in a way that's unprecedented in recent history. Political analyst Neil Milner joins us today to tell us why in our biweekly segment, The Long View. Good morning. Morning. I'm not citing a busy schedule. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. (laughs) All right. Well, we heard, you know, Sylvia Luke allude to what's coming down on the federal level. Well, there's a lot of bad stuff coming down on the federal level. And then let's save the worst for last, which is that this election is likely to be full of trouble Uh, for all kinds of reasons, one of which is what we'll call official voter suppression and the other which we'll call unofficial. Some people would call it vigilante voter suppression. But let's go through a few of the nuts and bolts first about about turnout. Uh, The first thing, if you want to talk about, is what the turnout seems to be nationally on the basis of mail-in ballots. You can kind of estimate it on a basis of some survey. It seems like in, in most places generally there is a fair amount of interest and turnout seems to be likely to be a little higher than uh, average midterm elections. Remember, you have to talk about midterm versus general because general elections where you elect the president, turnout is always higher. So that's likely to be the case. Why not necessarily so much? It's uh, the turnout for the midterm in 2020 was about the same as the uh, 2022, I should say, was about the same as it was for 2018, which is about 39 percent, not very high. Hawaii remains a low, uh, a low turnout state. There doesn't seem to be likely that you're going to have a high turnout here because the elections here simply aren't very salient. They're not very visible because they're not very contested. What about mail balloting? We saw a jump when mail ball- all mail balloting first started here, and then it dropped back. It's likely that mail balloting, all mail balloting over time, is not going to appreciably increase uh, the voting turnout here for what seems to be mainly because Voting here has never been that physically difficult. That is, mail ballot makes it easier to vote. And for people who find it harder to vote um, or who, you know, didn't think about voting very much and then they had the ballot, that makes a difference. But voting, non-voting has a lot to do with people not seeing politics as very important, not being very um, connected to politics which tends to be the case with with lots of people. If you don't have contested elections, you don't have competitive elections, really competitive elections, that's more likely to happen, which brings me to the last point about the nuts and bolts of turnout, which is that young people vote less than anybody else. One of the few things that older people we know do all through their life is that they continue to vote and they continue to vote disproportionately. 
it and and that when the voting turnout drops, like between uh, uh, a primary and a general election, the drop is greater among young people than it is among older. All of that is to say that we that there is so much. Um, patriotism and angst among people who push you to vote that you forget how your expectations and how your aspirations don't necessarily connect with uh, with reality so oh. that's that's the the thing there um, so I guess the only other thing I want to say about turnout that now gets us into this more fraud area is that more and more, it appears, as we become more polarized, we being the country, turnout turns out to be a much more important thing to fight over. And the, I, I use Wisconsin as an example because it's the, it's the clearest. The state is highly polarized. It has a, uh, it has a very liberal senator and it has a very conservative senator. The state... Is So on the surface, it looks like a competitive state, but it really isn't competitive in the way that you think, in the way that you appeal to moderates, because it's hard for either party to change someone from the other party's mind. So the fight, the struggle becomes turning out your base. It isn't trying to change the minds of people. It isn't trying to moderate your opinions to reach out into the center, which is not very existent anymore. Yeah, I mean, everybody's dug their heels Everybody's in. dug their heels. So there isn't much, yes. Yeah, so that what happens then is that the fight is about turning out your base. What, of course, that means is that you say things that are more extreme toward your base. And that's what happens. Okay. So now we're at the, at the, um, the really, the thing that everybody's worried about, and they should, and that is what's going to happen on election night and afterwards. And one thing we don't know yet, and one thing that unfortunately we know more about, let's take the one thing that we don't know too much about yet, and that is, let's call it official voter suppression. There have been a lot of changes in a lot of states, most of them Republican, that certainly make it harder to vote uh, and make it harder to get your ballot counted. Whether that, in fact, happens we don't know whether people will overcome that. And remember, that's really important in, cl in close races like you're going to have in Georgia, where you may not affect too many people, but you affect enough. There's a little bit of evidence, and Michael McDonald, uh, who does this U.S. elections constant monitoring, said there's a little bit of, of evidence that in, in Georgia that the, uh, at least on the basis of early voting, that it seems, and it's harder to early vote now, it seems to be that that's affecting people of color more than it's affecting white people. But he's very careful to say it's, it's early on. So we don't know yet about how the suppression is going to work. There's always been evidence that people figure out a way to vote. And, and there are other things that are, if an election is close enough and you're more involved in it, you might be more willing. I, that's an open question, although I'm, would be very surprised if you don't find some kind of uh, the effect of official suppression. The unofficial suppression is the stuff that, to me, is really scary. You have a group of people out in the world now, a whole large group of people, they are predominantly Republicans, who believe that there is an enormous amount of voter fraud, that the election was stolen, and that unless we monitor these things, we being private people, unless we monitor these the elections, uh, that in a, in a very way that is unprecedented and intrusive, there's going to be trouble. Remember how many election officials uh, have, have quit, how many are not running for office, how many threatened, <laughs> threatened to run for office, and how many people are intimidated about working in, in a—I mean, if you've ever been in, in, the, in the days when we used to vote here in person, uh, the average age of a volunteer was uh, Social Security age for right. sure. So— and there is just some outrageous stuff that's happening now, um, including in Arizona where you have uh, armed people guarding the poll watches. So what, what, what's going to happen, we don't know. What it's going to depend upon a lot is not just the behavior of these people who are so concerned, but what law enforcement is going to do in regard to protocols in a situation where it's never been involved before. When we say... This is virtually unprecedented in democracy. What that means on the ground 
is that people who are in charge of trying to keep bad stuff from happening may be in unfamiliar territory. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I'm getting used to, you know, voting by mail because I'm one of those that likes to go yeah. down there and put my ballot in the box. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, just recently we saw here where, you know, the election workers were kind of going through their tests and there were some people that were like oh, yeah. breathing heavy. You well, know? you certainly have some election skeptics <laughs> yeah. here. You've, they've never really gotten very strong because you haven't had the the Republican Party hasn't been that interested in mobilizing that kind of thing. There certainly are the election was stolen people here. It hasn't been organized very much. We are still in a bubble in regard to those kinds of things. But remember that Hawaii is part of a broader nation, and if bad things happen there. They're gonna they're gonna leak over to here, especially if if it involves a lot of election challenges, if it involves the U.S. Supreme Court taking on a case where they may change how the electoral college in effect is uh, works. Yeah. So, uh, okay, hoping for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Planning for the worst, but yeah, we we will see. Um, you know what happens uh, on Tuesday. And a lot of this, remember, will happen before. Hawaii media starts to cover the election because we're six hours later than the right. East Coast. Or I think maybe five hours. With the five hours, savory, maybe three hours. Time. It depends <laughs> where, yes. All right, well, thanks so much, Neil. Thank you. Political analyst Neil Milner is our contributing editor of our regular segment, The Long View. He'll be back in a couple of weeks to continue the conversation. Support for HPR comes from Bank of Hawaii, celebrating its 125th anniversary. To everyone who has played a part in the bank's journey, a warm mahalo. Learn more at boh.com, member FDIC. Are you interested in a career in radio? HPR has openings in its on-air operations department. You'll be part of the dedicated team that puts HPR's programs on the air and keeps it humming 24-7. Responsibilities include preparing shows for air, working in our on-air control rooms, and ensuring compliance with broadcast standards. If this is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, furnishing homes in Hawaii since 1909, featuring a design team offering personalized consultations to help bring dreams to life, online at cswoandsons.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today we've got a chittering chorus of shorebirds thanks to the Macaulay Library of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Sanderling. Hunakai, also known as Sanderlings, are common winter visitors to the Hawaiian Islands. At just about eight inches long from their tail to the tip of their bill, they're among the smallest of our many visiting shorebirds. Like other shorebirds, they molt into different plumage colors twice a year. In their winter or non-breeding plumage, which is the one we typically see, they have mostly bright white heads and bellies, jet black bills, and grayish plumage on their backs. Then during the breeding season, the plumage of both sexes changes to a more reddish brown on their heads and backs. In Hawaii, hunakai can often be found on sandy shores running back and forth between receding waves searching for crabs and worms that live in the wet sand between the tides. They can sometimes also be found in rocky tide pool areas and around mud flats in mixed flocks with other shorebird species. You can listen for a twittering series of soft, squeaky wick-wick calls. The Hawaiian name for sanderlings, or hunakai, means sea foam, which is appropriate as they spend a lot of time searching for food near the breaking waves on the shoreline. 
The white-flowered morning glory you can find along some beaches at the high tide mark also has the name Hunakai. Hunakai nest and breed in the high arctic tundra during summer, where they construct nests on the ground and lay camouflage-colored eggs to help protect them from predators. Similar to many shorebirds, the chicks are precocial, and so don't depend on parents much after hatching. Hunakai can be seen during the winter months in almost all temperate and tropical beaches around the world. Our birds arrive by late July or early August. After making the long non-stop flight across the Pacific that can take them three days or more. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Waiakea Water Kokua Initiative, dedicated to helping in the areas of education, conservation, and kupuna care throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Learn more at waiakea.com. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Republican gubernatorial candidate Duke Iona as the days tick away to the general election. It's That's Tuesday, November 8th. Have you, have you voted yet? Got an election story that you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works, too. And a reminder, all of our shows are archived on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.